Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Events Podcast, where we bring you the audio from our public programs, featuring in-depth analysis of topics on China from scholars, journalists, authors, and policymakers. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. I'm Steve Orleans, President of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. And um, I'm thrilled that in this, well, those of you who are on the East Coast of the United States in this gorgeous midsummer afternoon that so many people are joining us live for this really important discussion, uh, which we have titled The Shifting Military Balance, Military Balance Across the Taiwan Straits. I will be brief in my introduction because if you see on the screen, uh, we have an additional participant in, the, in today's dialogue which is Admiral Dennis Blair, who not only is director of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, uh, but is our former PACOM commander. It was PACOM back there, not, not back then, not Indo-PACOM, um, and also our director of national intelligence. We initially recruited two of America's outstanding uh, experts on uh, the Taiwan Straits, on the military balance in the Taiwan Straits, Oriana Schuyler Mastro and Lyle Goldstein. Oriana is uh, currently in Australia. So it is, she is, as I said a minute ago, a Laodong Mofang, a labor hero for being up at what is now 6 a.m. It was 5.50 a.m. when I first saw her. Um, and she, but her current job is, is, is as a fellow at the Freeman Fogley Institute for International Studies at Stanford. And she focuses on Chinese military and security policy. And is actually, she wrote a piece in Foreign Affairs, which I hope you all have seen, which has actually provoked um, the, this program. So she is also, I should not leave out, very importantly, a fellow um, at the Public Intellectuals Program of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. And participating in this program is exactly what we hope the fellows do. And we thank you so much for doing that. Lyle Goldstein is a research professor in the China Maritime Studies Institute um, at the Naval World College, an old friend. Um, he is also one of the leading authorities on kind of uh, the PLAN, the PLA, and uh, Taiwan Strait issues. So what we'll do is we'll have Lyle kick it off, we'll go to Oriana, and then we'll go to Admiral Blair. Um, Admiral Blair has a, an appointment at 4.30, so we will, he will need to drop off the call at that point. But uh, assuming Lyle and Oriana stay to their times, we'll have plenty of time to hear from, from uh, Admiral Blair. But let me talk, turn it over to Lyle. I know you're going to share some of your screen with us, but uh, thanks for joining us. Well, it's great to be with everyone today. Uh, thanks for taking time out of your day to join us on this uh, uh, extremely important issue here. Um, uh, let me say right up front, uh, very emphatically, that these are my own opinions. They don't in any way affect, uh, reflect a uh, official assessment of the Navy or, or the US government either. Um, but I, I did figure that showing a few, uh, I spend a lot of time every day uh, looking at Chinese news Chinese military news in particular, and uh, this is not material that most Americans are aware of uh, that see on a daily basis. So I thought I had better share some of that to show you uh, uh, we're really in 
kind of dire straits, folks. Uh, the warnings are piled up. Uh, uh, Professor Mastro covered that brilliantly in her recent foreign affairs piece. You know, I see this almost every day, literally, from uh, Loy Yuan just two days ago. Uh, he says there's a countdown. Uh, and, you know, I, I think we ignore these uh, warnings at our peril. That's my view. Um, why is this happening now? Well, uh, Professor Mastro again covers that very well in her piece. She raised the issue of Hong Kong. I guess my view on that is that this has been going on for, for quite a long time, though it's not really new. Uh, you know, here's a quote from uh, the famous Chinese strategist Zhang Wenmu saying, hey, you know, Mr. Crimea, uh, Mr. Putin can take Crimea. Why can't we take Taiwan? So, I mean, um, you know, Taiwan threats are, are not at all new, really. Uh, and go back a long time. And, and indeed, they have so many uh, buttons they can push. Uh, we might see a massive show of force. Uh, and we, we all know the flights across the median line have been increasing. We can talk about those some, but, but this gets worse, folks. I mean, China has a massive Coast Guard. They can pull into this too. But I mean, this goes all the way up to nuclear signaling. And uh, you can bet when I took this screenshot in the lower right, uh, uh, back in January 2017, this was right after Trump's call from uh, Tsai Ing-wen, I guess it was in December, uh, but the, this was on the news in, in January, and I think it was probably related. This is, a, this is uh, not a garbage truck, that's a DF-41 that can hit, you know, destroy Chicago or something. Uh, again, they have many things that they can do. The blockade, uh, as uh, Professor Mastro pointed out in her piece, uh, looks like a very feasible scenario. Uh, they have all kinds of ways to cut off Taiwan, uh, including capabilities, people, you know, we are all think about submarines and China's Navy and so forth, but look at the lower where that red arrow is. Okay, China has been thinking hard about how they can deal with our capabilities, including our submarines, for example. We can talk more about that. Uh, but it could look like a limited attack. Here are the Penghu Islands. You can see a small map. Uh, I've reviewed some of that uh, geography uh, and some of the defenses. I think Penghu's are quite vulnerable. This could be quite tempting. Uh, for China in a kind of limited way. That, by the way, that would reflect a historical Chinese attack on Taiwan, which came through the Penghu's. But what about an all-out attack? And here, I guess we'll take some time and maybe have some interesting disagreement. You know, people do disagree on this question. A lot of people make it about the big uh, amphibious attack ships, as you see. This is Type 075, where the red arrow pointed at it. Uh, yeah, we can talk about that, but in my view, it is a bit of a mistake, a bit of a red herring to focus just on that. Look, this is uh, less than 90 miles across the strait. You don't need the very fancy equipment to get across that strait. And, you know, if you watch Chinese military news the way I do, you can see exactly how they're going to do it. Uh, it's going to be low tech. It's going to involve tens of thousands of civilian ships. Uh, it's not going to be uh, fancy gear. Uh, uh, rather uh, low tech is going to be the way to go. This is a good solution for China because who wants to spend a torpedo or a fancy cruise missile? I think we call it El Razm these days. Who, it's, these boats don't even merit that kind of, uh, that kind of war shot on our part. Uh, but there are other pieces of this too, which uh, look fairly dire for Taiwan. Uh, there is a very robust airborne piece and China is working very hard on its airborne pieces. Uh, uh, forces. Uh, look at the red arrow in the center there, right? That's a night jump. Uh, people don't do that much. Uh, clearly, they have something in mind. Uh, look in the bottom right again at the red arrow. Um, these, will, these airborne forces now will be supplemented by uh, very formidable drone forces. And uh, just looking at the time here, but um, uh, helicopters are another new piece of this, uh, which changed the game. Uh, 
And uh, as you can see from these various pictures, uh, there is a tremendous amount going on here. You know, China learned a lot of this from us. Um, and uh, look at the red arrow again on the in the top left. Those are those are fuel tanks. Allow the helicopters to get across the strait. And then in the lower middle. Even the uh, People's Armed Police, that's a half million strong. Don't really think about them in a Taiwan context. We should, because they're increasingly, I think, part of the equation here. I can talk more about this. Uh, so, uh, but it, it, look, all of this is dependent on a massive uh, firepower strike that forces uh, the Taiwan uh, defenders way underground. And China has more than enough firepower, you know, in the missile forces, rocket artillery now allows them to do it economically, drones, like I said, and then I didn't even mention the PLA Air Force, which will be tasked with this as well. Uh, they're doing their homework, folks. Uh, they looked at the historical precedents, uh, and uh, you know, I looked some at this recently. They understand it's all about deception, absolutely. Uh, and they've studied Normandy upside down and backwards, I can tell you. Uh, Inchon as well, they understood the key to Inchon was they went where the enemy least expected it. Right, so uh, you must expect the unexpected here, and surprise is the key to everything. The Chinese understand this fully. Uh, mobilization, another key to this, and uh, could walk you through all their lessons of the Falklands and so forth. But they were so impressed by the, how the British mobilized civilian assets, and that is the absolute key to China's planning here, and uh, why they're likely to be successful. So uh, my bottom line, and we can put this slide up uh, again later if you want to discuss some of the issues here, and you'll see, you, you may be puzzled why uh, some of the uh, issues here figure on both sides, because I think it's sort of indeterminate which way they go, you know, the issue of allies, for example. But let's focus on the underlines here, surprise uh, on the one hand, and also um, interior lines. What do interior lines mean? It means they can, uh, the Chinese can put much more firepower into this scenario uh, than we can. Uh, certainly during the first uh, couple of months. And that will be decisive in my view. So uh, sorry to give you a kind of dark vision, but I think this is more or less a fait accompli. So let me stop there and uh, I'll stop sharing here and uh, turn it to my capable colleague. Very honored to join this panel here today. Yeah, thank you. And thank you all for having me. As, as Steve mentioned, I participated in the great public intellectuals program that the National Committee has a few cohorts ago. It was uh, an exceptional experience, not only to get a little bit more training, to be a public facing intellectual that helped me with such things like writing this article um, for foreign affairs, but also uh, connected me to a lot of other scholars that work on various aspects of China that have since become some of my closest colleagues, friends, and confidants. As was mentioned, I had an article in the last issue of Foreign Affairs that they called the Taiwan Temptation, which I laid out a, a series of reasons why I think Chinese thinking is shifting towards a consideration of armed unification. Now, I'm not arguing that this is inevitable. What I'm trying to raise the alarm about is that there is this conventional wisdom that I think there's three parts of it, but there's a conventional wisdom that China would never use force against Taiwan short of uh, a situation which Taiwan declared independence. The calculation goes something like, you know, they, they wouldn't wanna risk it, they could never win, they would be uh, international pariahs, this would be the end of the regime, the economic cost would be too high, et cetera, et cetera. What I tried to do in my article is lay out the reasons why I think a lot of these factors, which were absolutely true, 
20 years ago are no longer true. And, and like a lot of things of assessing Chinese capabilities and tensions, it's important for us to update our understanding of what is going on. Now, I don't know if I'm cursed or I'm lucky, but apparently this uh, article has uh, sparked a lot of debate. Um, and, and part of that is that Foreign Affairs is now going to run a response piece. Um, they've had three pieces submitted in response to my own, and they've asked me uh, in a day, which was actually yesterday, to write my response to what was being said. So I want to, in just a few minutes, lay out some of the, the main reasons that people um, disagree with this argument, that China is now more seriously considering, in their words, armed reunification, and, and sort of my views on why these counter arguments are not so, so, so persuasive. So the types of things that people have laid out in response to my piece are really nothing new. They don't provide any new evidence, so they haven't necessarily convinced me that I'm incorrect. They are, however, very clear articulations of the conventional wisdom, which I was trying to debunk the first time around. I, maybe I wasn't successful across the board, so now I have a second chance. So those sort of three main assumptions I would say is, one, that China doesn't have the military capabilities to pull it off, two, that the economic costs are sufficient to, to, to deter Xi Jinping, and three, China can wait forever indefinitely to achieve what I see as their most important national goal of reunification. So this sort of uh, ambiguous question of, you know, why can't China wait? Now, uh, Lyle has very clearly laid out some of the issues with the military capabilities. As I say in my article, there is a debate about the island land, the joint island landing campaign. I think most China military specialists think that they can do the other campaigns they're preparing for, right? Joint missile campaign, shooting a bunch of missiles at Taiwan, easy. Blockade, Lonnie Henley recently in a testimony to the USCC laid out very clearly why they would be successful. In that case, counter-intervention, uh, you know, preventing the United States from intervening effectively, they've been able to do this for quite some time. The big debate is about this joint island landing campaign. And as Lyle laid out very clearly, I think one of the, the issues of the debate is people are looking at different factors. Even some of my critics look at what the United States would want to have to do that campaign, and then says, well, China doesn't have that, so they can't do it. Or making historical comparisons of what it took for the United States to fight Japan. Is that really what it's gonna take China to fight Taiwan? I would say that at the height of World War II, the Japanese um, military was 6 million people that had uh, decades of combat experience. I, you know, I don't want to be dismissive of the Taiwan military, but we're talking about a situation that, that the army consists of 88,000 people, and of the 2.5 million reservists, maybe 300,000 get a five-week refresher course every once in a while. I think these comparisons are not necessarily valid. One of the main points that was brought up, and this goes to what Lyle was talking about, is that maybe all of this is a lie, Maybe the Chinese are engaged in a massive disinformation campaign in which they're presenting us in, in, in these Chinese language sources with all this stuff to convince us that they are now more capable than they are. I, I would first say that I have studied, you know, the Chinese military for a long time. No one, myself, you know, Lyle, anyone takes what China says at face value. They, they do sometimes have the tendency to exaggerate, but they also, I think most of the time, um, in their public facing Chinese language, they have the tendency to understate. This is how we get claims of the defense minister at Shangri-La saying they've never attacked another neighbor. This is how we get, they're not militarizing the South China Sea. Their strategy is usually to understate what's going on to try to delay any sort of response. 
Now, in the cases they do exaggerate, you know, the United States has independent means of verifying a lot of this. It's not the case that, that scholars and strategists just take what China says at face value. Indeed, whether it's the annual report to Congress that the Department of Defense has to do, or the testimonies that go before the US-China Economic Security Review Commission, hundreds and hundreds of reports that are published by, by universities, think tanks, or other research institutes like the RAND Corporation, all associated with the Department of Defense, they have laid out um, that they, there are these uh, that there are situations under which the United States could lose. Now, this isn't to say that it's a hopeless cause. It's just to say that before there was the United States would always win, and now there are situations under which they could lose. So this could be potentially encouraging to the Chinese. I mean, the point is well taken. This is not going to be maybe a cakewalk. Taiwan, of course, is going to get some shots in, but it doesn't have the ability to defend itself. And I think if the United States does make some significant changes to its force posture that improves its early warning, deals with the issue of surprise that Lyle pointed out, this could also have a deterrent effect on China. Second point, and I only have a few more minutes left, so I'll be just quick on this, is the economic considerations. In the article, I very clearly lay out that I, there are many reasons for China to think that economic costs are going to be acceptable. If it were the case that they would, you know, countries around the world would then cut off all their ties with China, not trade with China anymore, yeah, that cost is too high. But I think they are now integrated into the international system. They believe countries rely on them economically, and they've seen how countries react um, when they've done other unpopular things, and it's, you know, relatively muted response. Um, so there are reasons to think that the costs would not be too high. And even so, even if there were significant economic costs, time and time again, history has showed us that when it's a choice between territory and, and the economic cost of seizing that territory, leaders choose the territory. 80% of wars since the 1600s is about territories. And I would say if you looked at Xi Jinping's recent speech at the 100th anniversary, in which he warned against you know, foreign attempts to bully or oppress China, the language to use did not suggest to me a, 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 a leader that was not seriously considering or comfortable with sort of risk accepted, um, aggressive behavior. And, and I would also say that Xi Jinping's goals clearly do not stop at wealth and prosperity. Other countries, you know, it, it takes an independent decision to try to become a great power. You can just be wealthy and be wealthy and leave it as is. I would say that's kind of where Japan is, but then it takes an independent decision to say, okay, I wanna turn this wealth into great power status. And whether it is the Belt and Road Initiative, which has increased their power and influence, but at a great economic cost, a funding gap of $500 billion a year to the militarization of the South China Sea, which has alienated a lot of their partners, all of these things suggest that they don't care as much about the economic cost as sovereignty, which is the most important thing. Now, since my time is up, um, I'll wait in the Q&A to talk about why Xi Jinping cannot wait. Um, in my mind, you know, this isn't scientific. If you can achieve something that you wanted to achieve for a long time, why would you wait to achieve it? Um, they are in a good position now, and it's possible uh, that as the United States has recognized these challenges, that it's going to be harder in the future. And even if the United States is in decline, in their view, Chinese thinking is that a country like the United States in decline becomes even more aggressive and more dangerous. So if, if, if they do believe the United States is in decline, they actually believe it'll be worse to wait than it would be to do it today. So I'm happy to take some more questions about some of this logic, but I think um, I'm on the same page with Lyle that for the first time in a long time, this is a serious uh, consideration among the Chinese leadership 
to initiate a conflict versus just being a responsive scenario. And I hope that US strategists and decision makers take it as such. Great, you've put a ton on the table there for discussion. So let me turn it over to Admiral Blair before getting to my questions. Yeah, well, thank you very much, uh, Steve. Uh, what I'm going to try to do is uh, put myself in the position of the, the final, a final conference among the Chinese leadership on whether they do this or whether they don't. And uh, as I believe, they would have to think through uh, this scenario. I think if they come out at the end of that thought process, that there is high risk to that there could be consequences that uh, are, are bad for China, then they don't. If they come out with a thinking process that says uh, we can do this, handle all of the potential adverse consequences, uh, then we would we would uh, go ahead and uh, and make a move. Now, I, I completely agree with uh, with Lyle and with uh, Oriana that things have changed in the last twenty years since I commanded the forces that uh, would go to defend Taiwan if, if they were ordered and if that if that happened. But let me uh, point out some of the fundamentals that haven't changed. Uh, Lyle talked about several. Uh, and then Oriana did as well, several Chinese uh, military gambits that would be short of uh, invading the island, things like a blockade, things like a, uh, a uh, air and missile uh, assault, taking the Pangu Islands or something even simpler, taking the islands that are, direct, that are three to five miles uh, offshore of China in Taiwan, all of which could be done. But when you think those through, what happens next after China has has fired a lot of missiles, has put a blockade in for a while. If China, if Taiwan were to give up and say, okay, I don't want to take any more punishment, uh, I will join China as the 17th province, then, then okay, China wins. But that's not been the history of what most, uh, what most uh, countries do when they're attacked. Uh, and if, uh, if at that point, uh, Taiwan said, says, uh, okay, uh, you, you've made your initial move, but, uh, but we're girding up. The United States is coming to our assistance. Uh, China's being condemned. We're going to hang on here. What choices does China have? Uh, they either back down or they escalate. And if they back down, uh, then, um, then there is a new situation, but it's probably worse for China inter internationally. There certainly, would be, um, there certainly would be repercussions within Chinese power structures uh, having uh, embarked on this dangerous military road and not succeeded in uh, in uh, in reunification with the Taiwan, so they would have to escalate. So the way I see it, with these with these intermediate steps, uh, all of them lead you to having to be able to take and hold Taiwan with a military assault. And if you make one of these intermediate uh, moves, uh, your situation gets just that much worse for China because. The United States has more time to uh, come to Taiwan's assistance. Uh, uh, other countries uh, can, will take other economic and diplomatic moves against uh, Taiwan, and, but you're in a worse military situation. So that brings you to the that brings you to this all-out assault. And uh, Lyle showed, uh, and I agree with him. These are all of the ideas that are uh, that are uh, being talked about in uh, in Chinese military academies and. In, in their in their training sessions and in some of their acquisition programs, but let's look at the basic the basic situation. The basic situation is that in order to conduct a successful 
military assault against a big, well-prepared, well-armed country, and I, and I uh, don't, um, I don't dismiss the Taiwanese armed forces. I went there for seven years as a senior uh, evaluator for their annual exercise, and they, like any other country, they've got troops that are trained and would, will fight if if ordered. But the pulling off a successful assault depends on. And I don't care how many irregular civilian forces you have, you have to, you have to take a beach, a major port, and then be able to get follow-on forces uh, into your initial assault. And at that point, the maritime balance shifts. Uh, the invading country has to maintain sea and air control over the target, the target area, over Taiwan, for example. And at that point, the job of the United States uh, if we were if we were to join and of Taiwan is the sea denial role and that basically boils down to uh, sinking the large Chinese amphibious ships would, which would be necessary to bring in the second and third echelon of forces in order to expand a beachhead move out from a move out from it in order to take over the uh, island and this is not negated by uh, having a bunch of Chinese special forces or people's armed police running around in the country there are plenty of uh, plenty of Taiwanese uh, forces uh, which are quite adequate to to deal with them uh, it's it is very it is relatively easy to sink large amphibious or other vessels in a confined area like the route from Chinese ports to the to any sort of a an invasion a beachhead artificial arbors that they have established uh, Taiwan has lots of ways to do it the United States has even more ways to uh, more ways to do it, ways that the Chinese would not possibly be able to deal with. So I basically think their biggest vulnerability is in following on any initial, uh, any initial toehold that they form, any beachhead that they they take on the uh, Taiwanese uh, Taiwanese island. And I just don't think they can maintain it and resupply it. And Taiwan would have enough residual forces, which have survived any any sort of an initial barrage. Uh, to go back and uh, push them, push them back out. By this time, the United States is fully aroused. Uh, lots of uh, lots of American forces pouring in, air, navy, uh, and and others. And uh, and I and uh, it, it very low probability that China would be able to maintain enlarge its foothold into taking over all of Taiwan. So I think that the briefing uh, in the Central Military Committee. When China considers this uh, option, it is along the lines that I just uh, just stated. Uh, yeah, there, there is a chance that uh, things could break their way in, in a number of uh, a number of ways, as it did for say the Germans at Crete or, or in Crete or so on, and they could uh, and they they could succeed. There is a chance that Taiwan would roll over and say, "Yep, I we don't want damage. We give up. We'll we'll join you." But these are very these are I think are low probability situation so it continues to be very high risk uh, the final point i guess is that um china with all of the rhetoric that lao goldstein talked about and so on has aroused both taiwan and the united states and other countries that have an interest in the outcome like japan so um we basically the united states uh was distracted with uh Things in, in the Middle East, the Navy and the Air Force were not quite as distracted, and they've been making serious improvements in their in their capabilities. But now the United States is fully uh, aware, putting large resources to 
to making the uh, risks uh, even less. Taiwan has has turned things around, has a good strategy which they are which they are funding and which would make uh, their part of the operation very dangerous for China. So I just am not. Uh, I just think that the chances are extremely. Ex the, the risks are extremely high for China, so high that they would not uh, attempt it, uh, and that uh, we can keep it that way if we continue doing the smart things that we're doing. So, Steve, let me go to a. I'm afraid I have to sign off, but uh, uh, if you can take it from there, and enjoy being with you. Great, Denny. Thank you so much. I mean, it was very interesting and uh, comments. Some, you know, some disagreement, but not uh, some agreement. I mean, I actually think that continuing to maintain sufficient defensive capabilities, both in the US and in Taiwan are things that Lyle, Oriana, and you all agree. Fair enough? Fair enough. I don't think we I don't think we have them though. I think you know all the thinking in the world doesn't change the fact that China has 39 air bases in the range of Taiwan and the United States has one. I mean, I, there are some significant operational advantages, uh, disadvantages to the United States in this scenario that while the United States is trying to figure out ways around it, it's not so easy to resolve, even with all the focus uh, that we have on the issue now. So what are, you know, your conclusions, what does it mean that the U.S. should be doing that it is not doing, both Lyle and Ariana? Uh, missiles in the second island chain. So I, I think that basically we have this cost and position viewpoint with China that I don't think is effective. I think if you ask Xi Jinping, would you trade in your Navy to get Taiwan? He would be willing to do that. And so we have to show him that it's not possible, that he will not succeed. And I, I didn't have a chance to ask Admiral Blair, but what I would have followed up with is how long does it take that, that landing platform to sail that 80 miles. And then tell me how long it takes for the United States to get some submarines in position. I, I think that there is this window of opportunity as Lai was referring to a surprise in which with all the willingness in the world, the United States just does not have the assets in the region to stop China. So if we did have um, you know, land-based missiles in the second island chain, so these are the waters sort of beyond Taiwan, um, that we could have the firepower to saturate the strait to make it hard for them to make the crossing. But, but right now I do think that they believe they can make that crossing. And moreover, I don't see the doubt. I think before the deterrent was strong because it wasn't only the case that the United States convinced China that it could not succeed, right? We had, you know, an aircraft carrier was enough to convince China to stop harassing Taiwan because the United States had air superiority. But now China has a missile that can sink that carrier. Um, and so we have lost air superiority in this in this area. So it wasn't only the case that we could stop them from doing it, we could also convince them that any attempt would be costly. But now what is the cost of attempting? Like, let's play that out. They give it a try. Let's just say they, for whatever reason, it doesn't break their way. Maybe they just take a couple of offshore islands instead. Xi Jinping says he taught the Americans and the Taiwan separatists a lesson. And, you know, they, they try again another day. They're never going to lose Taiwan because they're a nuclear power. The United States does not have the will to fight a nuclear war. So ho hopefully our leaders would be smart enough never in, in a war termination type of situation to demand Taiwan independence. So but what's the downside really of trying? I think that's a lot, um, right. it, it's not as costly. That's as a political think. analysis very much more. In other words, you make, you make well, a- in, 
Right. In other words, my guess is a failed attempt not only would lead to the leadership change, it potentially would call into question the future of the Chinese Communist Party in China. I don't think so. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't think so. I think Xi Jinping, what is a failed attempt? I mean, just look at Lyle and all of the all of the propaganda. He says he fought the Americans, he taught them a lesson, and now they're in a better position than they were before. His plan all along was to do this. I think they they turn stuff around in their favor all the time. Uh, Lyle, you wanted to add some things here. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I guess I would say, um, maybe where I disagree with uh, the Admiral and both also uh, Professor Mastro, I, I don't, I mean, I'm not sure, but we, I don't see really any uh, uh, silver bullets here, not anything close. The, the, you know, to me, we're trying to solve a military problem in the U.S. We always turn to some kind of fancy technology. I think Professor Mastro said we should line the second island chain with all kinds of missiles. You know, I've thought that through some and uh, read a lot of Chinese analyses of that. My, myself, I'm I'm very skeptical. I mean, first of all, I, I don't see, uh, you know, either the Filipinos or the Japanese signing up for all the kind of infrastructure it would take uh, to to uh, line their islands with uh, with missiles. Moreover, I see no reason why China couldn't destroy those missiles. Uh, and that would put us in a kind of dangerous sort of arms race in that respect. Uh, you know, never mind all the environmental consequences and, you know, it's where, it, you know, the political sensitivities, which which caused me to think that's a very unrealistic scenario. But let's say we could put hundreds of missiles there. For what exactly? To sink some of those large landing craft, uh, landing ships that, that the Admiral talked about? I've said those are not critical. In fact, if anything, those are probably sponges to absorb all those missiles. Look, uh, China well understands at Normandy, there were 5,000 ships off the beach, 5,000. In this scenario, there may be 10,000, 15,000, 20,000. How do you do targeting when you're looking at 20,000 ships, all with kind of uh, radar arrays that mask their shape? It's an impossible problem. What I'm saying is that uh, this is a military problem that although, you know, we have a lot of smart people putting you know, their efforts at this, but we are not going to solve the problem that this is 90 miles off China's coast. You know, if Americans want to think about this a different way, think about the Cuba, how would Cuba be defended against the United States if the United States was determined to take it and willing to pay more or less any cost, which I think China is willing to pay and has the kind of focus and is willing to deploy both deception and in particular surprise. China will go for Taiwan when, when we least expect it. That's why I, I kind of disagree with, uh, various analysts who think we can read what they're writing and see whether, you know, that this might happen this year or next year. This is an impossible task, partly because it's the inverse. When they go quiet on Taiwan, you might expect them to come across. So it's a very difficult uh, enterprise here we're talking about. I'm the one non-military person on this panel. I don't understand how you could move 20,000 landing ships to the coast across from Taiwan and not have U.S. intelligence completely know what is going on and put in place uh, defensive measures. Wouldn't that be obvious? Well, let me explain. I mean, like I said, you don't, the, the idea of a landing ship, what does it mean, right? Uh, we, we tend to think of Normandy and all those tanks rolling off those big ships. Uh, actually, very few of those tanks made it across the beach in Normandy. They all sank. This was an infantry battle and, and, and Taiwan will be an infantry battle 
really tanks are not very relevant. So we're so focused on, you know, the big logistics. I think the Admiral said it's all about, you know, increasing the lodgement. Uh, sure, if we were going against the Wehrmacht and had to drive to Berlin, that's not the case here. This is going to be about urban combat, mountain combat, uh, special forces and paratroopers, small, uh, not small units, but coming in by small boat. Steve, you can easily deliver uh, small boats from uh, any general fishing boat. Uh, and believe me, China has a very extensive maritime militia so that uh, they, they could easily uh, deliver, um, I would say, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of troops. I'm not even talking about the airborne and heliborne attack, which would also involve, in my, to my estimate, could be as large as 100,000 uh, troops. So to me, uh, the idea of the lift question is well overstated. And if I can just add, Steve, a few things about ISR. You know, what can the United States ISR, what's ISR? Uh, sorry, intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance. So this is what you're referring to. Like, what like what did the United States know? Well, the first thing is going to what Lyle said about deception. So when we talk about now, you know, 25 bombers going to the to the center line of the Taiwan Strait, all this military activity, to me, I completely agree this is not. This is why it's not even included in my article. I don't see this as a sign of an impending invasion. These are just signaling devices, but it does make it so these types of large scale things become more routine. So the next time we see like huge amounts of Chinese assets being prepared, we think this is just another one of their exercises. Moreover, a lot of this mobilization is happening. You know, we have to have assets in place to see it, and we have to have assets to process the intelligence. There was an article recently by General Van Herc in War of the Rocks, the commander of, um, uh, of NORTHCOM, in which he talks about the fact that one of the main problems is that maybe 80% of intelligence that we collect, we never analyze. So, so we just don't have the capability. So you have to have the, the satellites in place at the exact time. You need to see things moving, sometimes from inside the country. You need to put all these pieces together and you need to do it in a timely manner. And then you need decision makers who are relatively risk acceptant who will say, okay, it might be the case that this is just an exercise. This might be the case that they're you know, doing a massive mobilization exercise. They're not really gonna do this, but I'm gonna take actions to flow US forces in the region, which could be seen as escalatory uh, that could potentially spark a conflict that wasn't gonna happen to begin with. So, so there are some operational situations, but there's also, I think, the political scenario, which can delay U.S. decision making, mm -hmm. that makes it hard. I mean, also, no president's going to want to fire the first shot on China if China hasn't fired a shot on the United States. So they're going to delay that as as long as possible. When you say signaling, the, what are they signaling? You you said the bomber flights think, are signaling. What are they signaling? I think they're signaling that they are not the China of 1995 that they're not afraid of the US military and that they can and are willing to fight in a Taiwan scenario. And if they did fight that this, you know, it would be immensely costly for the United States. So the United States should stay out. Um, those, I think that's a large art. Are those flights correlated to what the Chinese see or violations of the um, unofficial contact rules with China that when, you know, Secretary Pompeo throws out the old contact rules and suddenly China starts uh, running lots of planes up to the midline when, when we have more official contact, the, the Chinese then run more. Is there some correlation there? 
So I'll, I'll let Lyle sort of weigh in. I'll just say that when I've talked to the Chinese military, for example, about this issue in the South China Sea, it looks like there's a correlation because they always move in a timeline in response to the United States does. But in a lot of cases, these are things they wanted to do anyway, and they're just waiting for an excuse so they can say that they're legitimate in doing it. But I don't know, Lyle, if you have a different. Yeah, I think I think Ariana's certainly correct that you know the high exercise pattern partly is designed to create an environment where they can easily mask an attack. That is. Um, you know, there's always exercise going on. There's at this point, there's always planes flying through the ages and circling Taiwan. They've established a regularity to that. So, I mean, it will make it that much harder to see when a real attack is underway. And I expect all of those to ramp up and up and up um, as we go. Um, I do want to raise one caution with the ADIS, you know, that's the air defense identification zone. Taiwan's air defense identification zone, if you look at a map, it's very large. And it also covers areas, you know, that are very close to the Chinese coast. And and we, we talk about egress of China's Air Force and Navy into the uh, wider Pacific. You're going to run through those corridors. So, I mean, to me, we, we should differentiate between flying through the 80s and going across the midline. Uh, but by the way, you know, for, for the last year and more, China has very openly declared that they're ready to send uh, jets flying right across Taiwan uh, proper, uh, which would be at a incredibly escalatory move, but I do believe that's in there. You know, they have a very, uh, how to put a deep book of escalation uh, measures. I'm not sure ours is so deep, but they, they uh, view this as kind of testing our will uh, constantly. And, and some of that is going on. I, I would, one thing I want to disagree with uh, that the Admiral said, I'll respectfully disagree with him that he, he said we're on a kind of a good glide path with, you know, Taiwan has changed its defense strategy and they're, they're, you know, preparing in earnest now. I don't see that. I see the opposite. Uh, they have spent uh, well under 2%. That's well documented over the last two decades. I mean, that's, you know, it's as pitiful as our NATO uh, allies. That is uh, the contribution or, or, you know, facing the kind of threat they're facing. That's uh, not impressive at all. Uh, I don't think to the Chinese. And, you know, you can see, look what they're putting their money in. To, uh, they just, for example, um, put a huge amount of money into a giant landing ship. Uh, I suppose that will go down to the South China Sea and resupply their garrison or something like that. But like, why on earth, you know, maybe Taiwan is planning to invade the mainland? <laughs> really? I mean, why would they put a lot of money in, into a, a, a large landing attack ship? I mean, China's doing that, but I don't think it makes any sense for Taiwan to do. And, you know, it, uh, another thing there, F-16s, for example, uh, I think they just bought a new uh, a cluster of those. In my view, those will never leave the ground. Their bases will be destroyed, uh, and and so will Taiwan's navy. So as far as securing air and naval supremacy, which the admiral said is a prerequisite, I agree with that. But I see no problem at all for mainland China to secure that uh, supremacy in in air and sea. Uh, certainly in the first month of this operation. Funny question. I mean, today's news was full of um, calling out the Chinese Microsoft hack in hack in March. What are the implications of that for cross-strait relations? As I was thinking about our panel and thinking about this, it's what does it all mean in terms of kind of uh, the military balance uh, across the strait, or is it just another uh, you know negative development in U.S.-China relations? Well, I do think so. There's one thing that would convince me that China is probably going to wait, and that is. 
their drive towards self-sufficiency, financial, economic, and technological self-sufficiency. So a lot of the moves in the United States that started under the, the Trump administration that seemed to be continuing under the Biden administration um, with financial punishments or trying to hold back certain technological advances from China, which I agree with all those, those moves, but that has sparked this, this situation within the country in which they're, they've sort of realized they, they, they don't want to rely on the United States and their allies for these types of things. And so Xi Jinping has laid out a series of plans for this degree of self-sufficiency. So I would watch that. If it does look like the trend lines are such that they're going to be more self-sufficient and therefore um, more resilient against economic, financial, technological sanctions in a couple of years, I, I think that would be a, a reason to wait um, to initiate this conflict. Hmm. Um, yeah. Um, well, I, I agree with uh, uh, Professor Mastro in the article. She she said that the coupling, I think, and, and this increasing self-sufficiency, I think, gives China greater confidence that they can withstand. You know, they're less dependent on our market. Um, well, then that's all okay. So I, I do worry about some of these measures. I do, you know, on the unquestionably, you know, worsening U.S.-China relations, that's part of this. And I think China, the worse U.S.-China relations get, uh, the more they see conspiracy here. That is, you know, Taiwan is the cork in the bottle of their um, rise, you know, if you will. So that's dangerous. But I mean, more at a particular level of the economics here on the uh, tech side and, uh, you know, Taiwan is a leading uh, fabrication center of uh, microchips and, and China wants this technology. And I do worry that there is now almost like an additional incentive uh, for China to attack Taiwan. That is, they can take over these uh, fabrication facilities, which raise the ugly possibility that maybe a U.S. war plan, I, I shouldn't speculate, but uh, that they would have an incentive to even destroy those plants. But uh, that, that would be terrible. But one last thing I'll say here is, when we think about whether China would go or not go, you know, and, and that's really what I think Oriana's great article is about. But uh, um, to me, there, we do have a little bit of worry that if, if we're talking about Fortress Taiwan, that is Taiwan's digging ever deeper, you know, buying more and more missiles to defend itself, that China decides um, it's actually better to go today than, than a year from now or two years from now, because before, let's say, all those anti-ship missiles arrived, by the way, they did order a big shipment. I think that will be in 2023 or something like that. So, I mean, to me, that, that raises some ugly possibilities about windows closing and so forth. So that's, that's a- uh, Gay Christofferson asks about Russia's potential role. What do we know? Well, I do a lot of work on Russia and uh, I can say just briefly that Look, Russia is very aware of China's uh, interest in Taiwan, let's say, and they do follow Taiwan's, you know, as it were, they follow Beijing's line here pretty closely. You know, look, they, they are concerned and not just on the military side, they have real economic concerns that this could be a huge blow to the global economy and, and you know, they're looking to grow their economy. So, but in general, I would say Russians are happy about this tension, not to be too cynical, but you know, uh, they see this as an enormous distraction, uh, well, for both countries, but mainly for the US, it sort of pulls uh, military resources away from things that they care about, like Ukraine and so forth. Now, what will Russia do in this circumstance? I think they will supply China with weaponry uh, and uh, send fuel and other things. So I do think, you know, 
this is gives China some confidence to have Russia behind it. But I don't expect Russia to play a critical role in the Taiwan scenario. I certainly do not expect them to get involved in the war in a kind of uh, as a combatant. Yeah. Uh, if I can just add, because I sorry, I just finished this um, year long project on the Russian role, um, and I agree with everything Lyle has said. I would just say that I think their role would still be critical, even though it's not combat oriented, if this becomes a protracted conflict. So a lot of the scenarios we've talked about, these fait accompli, quick situations, I don't see the Russian role being particularly um, like you know deterministic, but because they, they are close enough to China, they think they're willing to take some international criticism or pressure to continue to supply China with that weaponry. And now their, their defense industries are becoming more and more mutually supporting as they engage in more um, joint development and joint production. So it's possible that China can kind of think of Russia as a strategic rear where they get weapons from China. They're also getting oil and things like that. And that puts the pressure on the United States to disrupt China's war machine are you going to attack Russia? I mean, that that is a level of escalation that the United States might not be willing um, to, to take. And then they could also do things. They've done all these joint air patrols recently. China and Russia could engage in, like, not, not support in the war, but do things like, oh, to maintain peace and stability in this area. We're going to continue these defensive patrols. But that would also kind of close off that area to the war fighting. So that could also complicate planning. But could I also just comment? I definitely agree with everything Professor Mastro said, but I would also add there's a, one more possibility here, which is Russia could help on the front of deception. I would not be surprised at all if, uh, you know, uh, President Xi calls President Putin and says, hey, look, we were very serious now about doing this in a month. We need you to make a very high level distraction in the Baltic or Ukraine. Uh, please uh, make a lot of noise. And, and actually, Russia did engage in this actually just literally a month and a half ago or two months ago. They had a major buildup in Ukraine and got a lot of people looking in that direction. Well, that kind of deception, you know, I could see that on many fronts, but I, I could easily see Russia and China collaborating in that kind of deception. And, and I have to say, I think it would be hard to uh, see through that. Dongu, you asked about these couple of military cargo planes that have come in to. Taiwan, U.S. military cargo planes that landed in Taipei in the last week. What's going on there? Well, I could just comment quickly. I, I haven't seen a lot of U.S. explanation. It seems to me, um, you know, we continue to push boundaries there on what is um, acceptable. I, I myself have been a uh, and to me, that's been going on since 2016, at least. Uh, to me, that is not a wise policy. I will tell you, I've been reading a lot of uh, Chinese military press in the last 72 hours on this, and they are very, uh, how to put it, um, there's a lot of uh, harsh rhetoric flowing across the Chinese airwaves these days, uh, and a lot of people banging their fists saying, I, I guess from the Chinese point of view, you know, this is... Uh, you know, to them, they're saying this crosses a red line. So, I mean, to me, this is quite dangerous and uh, have, have we want to avoid this kind of escalation. Have we had military transports landing in China, in Taiwan before? I think it has happened a couple of times before. I believe uh, some it's senators recently traveled, but it, it's it's been rare. I think very rare, maybe happened twice before. But I, I think, uh, the, you know, I have no... No, there's no question in my mind that the Chinese follow these minute points uh, to uh, very carefully. And they, you know, a lot of this is about symbols. You know, at what point 
is the U.S. military back in Taiwan. For them, they have said that is one of their red lines. So, I mean, um, you know, to me, that that's what's kind of scary here, folks, in my view, is that we don't we don't have clear red lines. Um, you could say maybe their red lines are not entirely clear. Well, what happens? That is how you sleepwalk into a war. Uh, I'm very concerned about that. The parallels with uh, 1914, to me, are very real. I think Armitage, um, uh, Dodd, and Steinberg went on a military transport when they visited Taiwan. This, you know, delivering the, you know, message from Biden. Um, I think it just highlights though that reassure. So this is one of the obvious weaknesses of my piece that people have pointed out, a critique that I agree with, which is. Credible threats are central to deterrence, but so is reassurance. And, and I argued when I, I testified for the USCC in February that I think we should have a change in posture, but not policy. I explicitly do not think that there should be any changes to US policy on Taiwan, whether it's a you know, move towards strategic clarity, I think is a horrible idea. Anything that suggests that the United States might be reconsidering its position is extremely dangerous. You know, and so Per Campbell can come out and say, I think it was he who said, you know, the United States does, you know, does not support Taiwan independence or, you know, we support the one China policy but our actions also speak very loudly. And if you're on the Chinese side, you have a different narrative in your head and that is of a declining power. Wars are caused by declining powers refusing to give up their positions, um, that their power is less and less, you know, their position is, is stronger than their power. It's less commensurate with their actual power and that they'll launch a preventive war against you to stop your rise. And so they see a lot of these movements is evidence for a potentially dangerous and aggressive United States. And so I think reassurance is absolutely critical. And it's very unfortunate that tensions between the two countries have reached the point that they've affected to a degree the people-to-people -people relationship, but also COVID has had a huge impact on that. I really do hope that we can get back to much more engagement to try to help with that reassurance component um, at the individual level, which of course is something that the National Committee uh, does quite extensively and effectively. I, I, I absolutely agree. I, I've been puzzled actually. So you had Jake and Jake Sullivan and Kurt Campbell both reaffirming the one China policy, reaffirming no, you know, not supporting Taiwan independence. At the same time, we've had what I would consider, you know, not major but peculiar actions, whether you know the 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 visit of the American ambassador from Palau to Taiwan. I don't recall American ambassadors, sitting American ambassadors going to Taiwan. The meeting of the Chargés, uh, well, it's not truly a Chargé in Tokyo, but the Taiwan representative meeting with the Chargé in Tokyo. Uh, not completely throwing out the Pompeo rules on contact. So, so you know, the, the administration says, well, we got rid of the rules. Well, not quite. <laughs> they didn't go back to the status quo ante, so it's actually uh, risking the political. Lyle, go ahead. Yeah, and I, I think another complication here, I, I agree with everything both of you said there, but uh, to me is another complication here, which is Japan's role, and this has been in the news uh, a lot lately, and I would say, uh, as I read uh, Chinese uh, writings, uh, this has also uh, really inflamed this, the, the debate in Beijing again. Uh, you know, look, uh, Japan ruled Taiwan for 50 years. Uh, Li Tanghui served in the Japanese army and spoke Japanese fluently. This is, a, a, how to put it, a red hot issue. Uh, and I'm, um, I'm very um, 
how to put it, I, I think it's quite disturbing here how uh, this could, um, you know, we don't want to pretend this is all about what Washington does at all. Uh, there's other players here. And, and uh, you know, again, this to me, it looks a lot like sleepwalking into a, uh, a war. So, I mean, Laura Lerman asked in one, of, in one of the questions, she said, you know, what is the impact of these statements by Japanese leaders? And I guess, Lyle, what you're saying is not good, that we probably should have been more careful in how we approach that. Yeah, I mean, my my real concern here is, um, you know, that in the in the Chinese mind, um, you know, this this is one reason why Taiwan becomes a central uh, focal point of Chinese nationalism, uh, not the South China Sea, not sort of the Korean Peninsula or the Sino-Indian. Why Taiwan? Well, partly it is because you know, in the Chinese mind, this is where you know Japanese in you know, the Japanese uh, aggression against China began, you know, if you will, in the, in the Chinese mind. So that's why it's so, I think, deleterious here to have um, those kind of uh, statements. Uh, and I, I'm concerned because a lot of uh, American strategists seem to have concluded that Japan is the key. So the more we push Tokyo to make such statements, the more we have deterrence. In my view, I could, this could really end badly for us as it, it just exaggerates the escalation spiral. We only really have I think, I think the big, yeah, I'm sorry. I, I would just say that I think the big issue is this this outdated view that the that resolve communicating resolve enhances deterrence. Uh, China China has now planned for war even if the United States intervenes, right? Even if other countries intervene, it's not a question of capabilities. So I agree that these statements coming from Japan are not helpful. But if they if the Japanese involvement was such that they would credibly be involved in an actual contingency to defend Taiwan, I think that would enhance deterrence. But making sort of provocative statements, I don't think we're even close to being there. It does not help operationally. And, and I think the administration thinks that it signals resolve. But again, resolve is not, I think, the main factor that we need to be signaling. What I always find most difficult to kind of wrestle with is how much of what China does is a reaction to kind of the perceived violations of you know, the three communiques and the, you know, and how much of it is part of the plan. So it's like, Oriana, you say, well, you know, he can't, he can't wait. Well, my view is more, if you don't provoke, he can wait a long, long, long time, certainly the rest of my lifetime. So give your view of kind of why he can't wait, Oriana. So the first sort of non, I, I think, it would be extremely tempting if, again, you, you sort of agree with my logic that this is possible, that you could succeed at achieving the greatest goal that China has ever had at an acceptable cost that's extremely tempting. Xi Jinping and his other activities has demonstrated, you know, I don't know the internal workings of his mind, but he's demonstrated his relatively risk accepted for the sake of great gains. And I think it's also, this is sort of non-scientific, but it's human nature. If, so, if you could have something now, you know, like I just moved over to Stanford from Georgetown and my tenure clock, they're going to give me five years. Am I going to wait five more years before I go up to ten for tenure? No, the second I get my second book under contract, I'm going to go up for tenure, right? I, I just don't think this idea, it's as much of a myth as convincing China it's better off if they're number two to our number one. Like if you can do it, you can succeed and he gets that glory. I think it's extremely tempting. And that's why the article is called The Taiwan Temptation. 
I know you've got to run right now, but so let me just let Lyle give a last word on that issue. And well, I would just say I, I agree wholeheartedly with Ariana, and I think uh, you know we we can imagine circumstances where there'd be even more of a temptation. I think, for instance, if if China's COVID response was like a catastrophe, perhaps they would be feel greater need to prove the party's you know uh, wisdom or something like that. But I would say here. Here, I would add to her fine article that the military now is a kind of interest group that very much is pushing. I think, you know, they, they have this nice budget. They have all this fancy kit. They want to show their stuff. They want to show their loyalty to the party. They want their heroes and martyrs. Yes, martyrs. Uh, it's sad, but true. And unfortunately, you know, we, we know that military organizations tend to be inclined toward more offensive strategies. And I think we have that in China, we have that in the US, but we also have that in China, unfortunately. This has been a fabulous program, fascinating. I've learned a ton. I see every, our entire audience stayed with us the whole time. So that's a testimony to how riveting your comments were. I think this is an incredibly important issue, one which needs to you know, glad you've written about it, glad you will continue to write about it, and glad the committee can be a platform for what I thought was a very interesting discussion of this issue. So thank you all for joining us. Oriana, we will let you get back to your duties now starting at, um, is it now 7 a.m. there? Yeah, yeah, I hear the rumblings of the baby, but no screaming. So so we have we've gotten lucky, right? Things can break your way. You, you, you give it a try, and if they break your way, you know, uh, that's all good. So thank you again for, for having me. This was a great discussion and, great. and always a pleasure, Lyle. Thanks, everybody. Nice to see you all. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org.